Welcome to our podcast. I'm Ethan Whitehill, President and Chief Creative Officer at Crux, the unagency that fuels business growth. Here on To The Point, we get to the point with entrepreneurs and marketers who have transformed organizations by elevating brands and amplifying missions. We have a great podcast in store for you today. My guest is John Copakin, Principal at Copakin Brooks, where he is instrumental in the commercial real estate firm's leadership and strategic planning. A well-rounded leader and advisor, John is active in the entire development process, including major tenant office and retail leasing, financing, land acquisition, zoning, and construction. He's also an expert in forming public and private partnerships. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first off, you and I were just talking earlier, we were at a downtown council meeting, and that was, a, that was a fabulous event. I think there's always stuff I take away in terms of the growth of our city, and I, I want to start there, if I, if I could. For those who aren't aware, explain what urban growth and density look like for Kansas City. Uh, what appeals to you about Kansas City's downtown and crossroads areas in particular? Sure. Well, urban growth and density, I think, are the most important pieces of development. And uh, in Kansas City, we have a unique position where um, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of areas that still need development, and one or two or three key projects can really make a difference. But it's important to me that no block is left empty in between the exciting new developments or renovations, and um, that density creates a walkable, exciting environment that people want to be part of. And thinking about people being out and about. Thank goodness we can do that again. You know, a lot of folks that might be considering office spaces are also wondering what is the future of work? So with hybrid work environments, remote employees, uh, what are you seeing on your radar? Yeah, and the future of work is the question on everybody's mind, but it's definitely um, people are slowly coming back to work, some companies more than others, but there are companies that have gone completely virtual, but it seems like for the most part, if you can generalize, People are are in a hybrid mode and will be for some foreseeable future where they might not be there five days a week, they might be three or four days a week. I do think uh, for companies that are wanting to build culture and are wanting to be successful and be around each other, um, you know, they cannot viably compete if they're in the office zero days or one day or maybe even two days. Um, There are companies that are successful Uh, being totally remote, but I think for the vast majority, people need to be around each other, collaborate in person, and have their meetings together. Clearly, the world of work has changed, and you've been on top of those trends, not just through COVID, but your firm has been doing this for a long time. In fact, you celebrated 100 years last year. Talk about that legacy. It's a great achievement, really, to be part of not only an organization that's been around that long, but a really third generation of family involvement. It's not 100% family owned anymore. We have two non-family partners, uh, Bill Crandall and Bucky Brooks, along with my brother Keith Copakin, but still maintains much of a family atmosphere and dynamic. And um, I remember the, you know, the, the statistics of one generation to the next, I think are about 30%. And the statistics going the next generation are like 10% of that 30%. So even if those are off a little bit, uh, the odds are definitely stacked against us, but it's exciting to be part of something that's working really well. So with such a great track record over such a long history, it's hard to improve on that. What do you do next? Like, how do you think about, uh, you know, expansion in the future and where you go? Yeah, you know, everybody's always wanting to improve. But I 
Don't think of it so much as improving upon that legacy as doing different things and doing innovative, uh, cool, landscape-changing, and profitable uh, projects. So, for example, um, the previous generation was very much regional mall-based development with some high-rise office. Um, the mall business was a one-generation business, if you really think about it. People mixed use for thousands of years, then people separated use, and where in the early 90s there were 100 malls being built every year, um, you know, you're lucky to maybe have one enclosed mall in a year. And um, so that's a format that doesn't exist. So what are the things we're doing now? Uh, we're doing several multifamily developments. We've done some industrial logistics developments. We are invested in some underground uh, uh, storage areas. We're looking at building a self-storage above ground. But we still have our retail and office to boot. So we go where the demand is and we use our skills and our relationships uh, to build that. So back to your original question, I don't know if that's improving or not, but it's being a vital part of the real estate landscape, but in, in different ways than we did before. So thinking about those projects that you're investing in and, and, and you're involving your team on, what are some of the projects that stand out in your mind as great examples of positive growth and economic impact? Sure. I think um, one that's all of a sudden now uh, 15 years old or a little bit older is uh, the Plaza Colonnade on the on the Country Club Plaza where the library district owned a building that was falling apart. And they went out for an RFP to put together uh, they didn't know quite what it would be, but they wanted a new library. We successfully won the beauty contest to figure out what we were going to do. And um, what it turned into was office, retail, mixed use, and library. But what's uh, truly unique about it is it's a public-private partnership that really ended up building a public library where they didn't have to tax the library district more. So in terms of public-private, that's unique because you really got an asset out of it. We have other public-private partnerships where incentives and other things help create the project, and there's public benefits, but that was unique, and there's a real public asset created. And so that is a little bit historic. Um, we're very active while a lot of our attention's in downtown Kansas City. We're also very active in other places in the metro and out at City Center, Lenexa, at 87th and 435, where we've helped spur and create a new downtown that was a cornfield 10 years ago. A lot of other players and developers are doing development in and around there, but that was a um, cornfield on the way to three and two baseball most of all of our lives. And um, so that's multifamily, that's office, that's headquarter office like Kiwit, and that's Johnson County Library, that's a swimming complex. It's a joint venture between the city and Shawnee Mission School District. And so it's a real town that uh, emerged out of nowhere as Lenexa's sort of downtown. And now you have a um, hospital being built and uh, hotels and apartments and other things that some were involved in and some were not. So that's, that's a dense urban environment in a suburban setting, but it's, uh, it's great nonetheless. I just love the vision to see that opportunity to begin with. And, you know, I wonder, how does that even happen? Like, who who comes together and has those conversations that actually leads to the idea that is the inception of all that? Sure. On that particular project, that's been uh, my brother Keith's um, 
main project while he's done other things, but over the last uh, really 15 years in helping achieve that vision. But the original vision really came from the city, and the city wanted to create a new downtown, a new area in Lenexa to compete with the Overland Parks in Kansas City, et cetera. And so they started um, taxing and putting in the infrastructure and putting in the roads really ahead of demand. And that's hard to do, period, but in any political climate, uh, taxing the public for projects to be done later and hopefully people will come. You know, credit the city people, Mayor Bame and all the rest for doing that. So they, they really set the original vision and then our company really led with Keith uh, came together and continues to help achieve that vision for Lenexa. That's fantastic. And I think about the vision that Kansas City has and some of the things that are coming to fruition in general for, for our town uh, in the metropolitan area. So we've been on fire, it feels like lately. You know, we have the streetcar, the NFL draft is going to be in town next week. We've got the upcoming World Cup. Um, you know, how should Kansas City take advantage of all this really cool momentum? Yeah, there's no doubt. You mentioned several of the things um, going on, and we really got to keep the foot on the gas and on the pedal, so to speak, and uh, make sure that we don't get in our way and be complacent. And what I really mean by that is um, I don't know that it's unique to Kansas City, but it seems like it happens a lot around where we do have a lot of momentum and therefore we think we, we're done. We've achieved it and everything's just going to flow from there. And I think especially downtown where there have been neat and interesting projects over the years, but up until really power and light, you know, the previous 30 years have seen a drain of our particular style of downtown. And so that's 30 years of growth and investment that carried on elsewhere. And it may be good for those areas, but we, we had a big hole to dig out of. And you're, in my mind, you're never really done and you never really stop reinvesting and rebuilding. And again, trying to create that density that we're, that we're gaining. And you think of downtown now versus 15 years ago, it's a totally different world, but we have, um, a generation more of work to do, which to some may be like, oh, you know, oh my God, uh, you know, another 30 years or something to me is really exciting because firms like ours can be part of uh, achieving that success and changing changing the landscape here. And as that landscape changes, and you mentioned this, you know, we are going to get denser, we are going to have growth in other ways. Um, what are the things we need to prepare for as that happens, you know, as we start seeing that population increase? Yeah, I think we're in a good position uh, in certain ways because what seems to constrain a lot of cities, um, and wait, there's a lot of things to be jealous about Nashville and Austin and there's other cities, but they often don't have the infrastructure that can come along with that growth. So we used uh, Lenex as an example. So bedroom community may be a little bit easier to deal with the growth, but they invested ahead of the growth in their infrastructure and it's paying off now. What tends to happen is it's politically hard to uh, invest in roads and curbs and gutters and things like that. And so in our example, you know, we have a downtown where all the highways connect. We have a downtown where a lot of the major thoroughfares that aren't highways. There's so many ways in and out in the um, infrastructure is really created, at least in a car sense, for um, 
a population that's maybe twice what we have now. So I don't want to say you don't have to worry about it or we can do everything without any improvements, road improvements, but we're in a really good position to have a lot of projects happen. And, you know, yes, if somebody has to wait three or four minutes or five minutes more, um, that's a big deal in Kansas City. (laughs) But but that's not, you know, that's not the be all end all. Um, But what I was going to say, too, is that's talking about the car. There's been a lot of um, other forms of transportation, whether it be bike or bus improvements that are necessary, or, you know, the streetcar, which which we and I'm really involved in, um, is a major piece of the public transportation beyond just figuring out how to get as many cars in and out. So there's a lot of exciting pieces that I think we're on top of, but we got to make sure we don't get in our way of uh, finishing them off. So in terms of some of those big projects that could be game-changing for the downtown area, came up today, actually, at the Downtown Council event, uh, the Downtown Ballpark. Uh, So I know a lot of people have had conversations about what could be, should be in that space. I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on, you know, what the what the impact is of of something like that, a move like that. Why is that important to a city? Why would somebody consider that? Right. Well, so that's an issue that um, I started being involved in really probably – 16, 18 years ago when I was chair of the downtown council. It just was coincidental that at the time I was chair, there was a um, decision to be made about renovations, things of that nature. And um, so it's been kind of a long time coming versus something that's just appearing now. And um, the importance of it is that um, if you want to create density and you want a urban type lifestyle. And not everybody wants that, but for the health of a city in general, I think it needs that. Um, If the public's going to help invest in a major project like that, and everybody would love to say, oh, yeah, wealthy sports owners, just do that yourself. But that's that's not the world. And when you're talking about uh, wealth, but close to billion dollar kind of big public infrastructure investments like stadiums, it generally needs some help. And cities and states generally help because they covet uh, the idea of major league sports. So the real importance is helping to create that uh, urban environment, but it's beyond the stadium. So it's, um, it's residential, it's additional office, it's additional bar and restaurant opportunities that tend to be around these facilities. And almost every city that has built a new stadium in the last generation has put them downtown. And there's a lot of different reasons, but I would say from the public standpoint, if you're going to help invest in this, you want your highest return on investment. And if it's a standalone project in the middle of a highway intersection, the public's not going to get their return. I think we have Uh, some good examples of where there's um, stadiums that have been built that are great in themselves, but they don't create any spinoff. And I think we have um, a whole generation of examples where people have done them where there is spinoff and public and cities might as well um, gain those benefits if they're going to invest. In thinking about uh, how you sort of invest, and I think a lot of that takes coalition. (laughs) You've got to build uh, probably a groundswell of of support with folks. Um, You know, where does that start? You know, how how does how does one actually 
get that momentum. Obviously, the ballpark has been a conversation for a while, but um, you know, it takes politicians, it takes developers, it takes business and, and you know, citizens that are active and engaged. Where does that begin? Well, in our business, like a lot of businesses, but it starts with relationships. And it really does start with a relationship combined with um, sensing demand. So whether it's multifamily, whether it's a new retail center or office, um, you just can run all the studies you want. And we end up doing the studies, but it starts with seeing trends, seeing demand, seeing where you think people want to be, where they want to live, where they want to work, are they coming back to work, and doing a lot of guesswork because nobody knows all those answers. Um, but So you take that demand and then you work with the relationships you have. So you do need neighbors, you do need lenders, you do need tenants, and very importantly, you need governmental bodies at cities, whether there's incentives or other public investment involved or you just need zoning type approval. So from our standpoint, we spend a lot of time working on those relationships when we don't have anything that we're in there to ask for, meaning um, lunches or just things outside or boards or involvement in things that have nothing to do with your project because there's a different feeling and a different reception that you get when you're not meeting somebody for the first time when you're asking them to do something for you. So those relationships are really important to a lot of businesses, as I mentioned, but really important to what we do and how we go about doing projects. Yeah, I think about um, those conversations that are required and, and sort of those relationships that are developed, and it's all in service of kind of a bigger goal. And, you know, if I think about what's the why, part of the why is, you know, because we have to compete as a city. And when you think about Kansas City competing with other markets, which, you know, frankly, from a, a talent perspective, we do, um, what do you think we're missing? What does Kansas City need next? I think we just need um, more. And um, I just, back to the density issue, back to the projects, you know, um, one project, one office building or something around here takes on um, an inordinate amount of attention and discussion and everything, but that's because there's only one or two of those things. I mean, we need a lot more so that the focus isn't just on the one project and uh, people positively and negatively pick it apart, but we have multiple projects and multiple things going on. Um, so I think we need more, but we also need a functioning city, government, state that wants to um, foster doing more versus, again, like we talked about, um, the feeling that, we hey, we've kind of done enough and things are just going to happen on their own. So you got to have the right people and attitudes um, Put together, and I actually think that uh, Kansas City's in a good place right now. But we have to have um, people with attitudes that want to make things easier rather than harder. Thinking about the progress of the city, and I, I know that you're you're always thinking about the progress of, of your own company as well. And um, you know that makes me think a little bit about a recent merger. So uh, with CBC Real Estate Group and Copic and Brooks, what inspired that? So. Uh, from CBC, one of the three principals there is a guy named Bill Crandall, and Bill and I met in actually the uh, Centurions Leadership Program of the Chamber about 25 years ago, and we've actually collaborated uh, when Applebee's built their headquarters out in Lenexa 
dating me now, but probably 15 years ago or so, um, we, with Bill Crandall, who was at Zimmer Real Estate at the time, uh, collaborated to get that development done. So over the years, we've talked about uh, working together. Um, Bill is good at a lot of different things, but um, one of his main strengths is in the owner's rep business, which means representing the city. So like he's representing uh, on the um, aquarium project that's going on in the zoo now. So he worked on behalf when he was at Zimmer on behalf of Wyandotte County in relation to the whole legends development. So things where they or we now might not be a direct investor, but we're acting like owners and working for owners who don't, who aren't necessarily us like a municipality or whatever. And so um, he's very strong. He's really the go-to guy in that. And honestly, whenever we were competing against him for some of those jobs, um, he'd be the winner. And so it was good to pull together the winner with us um, and uh, continue to build our firm that now has some more expertise in that particular world. Well, that gets us to uh, my mystery question yes. as the next question. So uh, I'm, I have this 20-sided die. Uh, and I have 20 questions, so it's going to be totally random what comes up, and this is going to be, this is the fun, <laughs> surprising part of the conversation. Right. Oh, we rolled a 20. Let's see what that is. What was your first job? My first job was working at um, an ice cream shop in Ward Parkway called Swenson's <laughs> that used to exist as a mini chain or whatever, and uh and that's, uh, that's what I did for my first job. That's awesome. I think my first job was ice cream also. Yeah. Or Fatelli's Scoop and Deli in Manchester, Connecticut. Oh, so. <laughs> so we can share ice cream yeah. war stories at I some point. <laughs> well, um, this has been absolutely fantastic. I, have, I do have one more question. Sure. How can our listeners learn more about Copic and Brooks? Well, like most companies in the world these days, we do have a website. So that's one way to learn. Um, Honestly, if people have projects or ideas, we're very accessible. People can reach out to any of us, call us, and just ask questions. I mean, the easy way is website and doing research and looking back at some of the projects. That's probably the easy way, but glad to talk to any of the listeners who might uh, have something to say. Thank you, John. Yes, thanks for having me. Appreciate the conversation.